Hey, if you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. My name is Steve. If you got a Bible, uh, why don't you go ahead and grab it? If you don't, there should be one in the pew right in front of you. If you don't have one, that is our gift to you. Read it till the cover falls off and then come back and get another one and keep going. And you repeat that for 50 years till you go see Jesus. And that's what you do. That's what it means to be a Christian. So do that. So I want you to find uh, two places before we start. Uh, turn in your Bible to right about the middle. We're going to find Ecclesiastes chapter 4, which is where we're going to be today, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And then I want you to go back into the Old Testament and find 1 Kings. Uh, I want you to find 1 Kings chapter 12. Uh, and we're going to look at that just briefly. Let me tell you where we've been in our study of the, uh, the, bleh, the hard to say. Uh, in our study of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes are, is Solomon's reflection on life under the sun. We saw uh, him talking about creation, and he presents to us this thesis in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity in this life under the sun. And he talks to us about creation, about how creation has no net profit to it. There's no gain to creation. Creation does the same thing over and over again. And then we saw in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we saw Solomon searching for uh, gain in a variety of places in his uh, examination of life under the sun. And then last week in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we said that Solomon took seriously two big inherent subjective philosophical realities that humans have. One of which is our search for meaning. God has put eternity in our hearts he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, yet man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. That we live lives longing and searching to make sense of these seasons in our lives of planting and building and uprooting and mending and tearing. And it's hard for us to see. In fact, we can't see it until we'll step over the sun into eternity to see those things. And then number two, we saw this great philosophical longing uh, where Solomon looks at the places where there should be righteousness and justice and he sees wickedness. And he says mankind without this dignity of God in, in him, man made in his image takes mankind and we de-evolve into beasts where it's power and the strong eat the weak. Well today we're going to look in one more place in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 where Solomon is going to take a look at another philo philosophical longing that we have in our hearts. And then he's going to turn the mirror on us. And it's going to get really uncomfortable in about 15 minutes. Okay? So if you're, get ready for that. Uh, just prepare, put on your, you know, mental, spiritual bike helmet and life vest. And uh, Solomon is going to expose all of us in this text in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. But before we get there, take a look at 2 Kings chapter 12. 2 Kings chapter 12 is the other side of Solomon's kingdom. We said when we started this book that Solomon is the richest, most influential, most accomplished individual the world has ever seen. That he has wisdom from on high. That God himself has called him to be the king and the leader of the people of Israel. And God has gifted him wisdom that nobody else can stand up to. And 2 Kings chapter 12 is uh, a moment in the history of Israel where the people look back on the reign of Solomon. And now they're looking at Solomon's son, Rehoboam. 
And this is right before the kingdom splits into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And these individuals, as you'll see in this passage, come to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and they have a conversation with him about what is going to happen next in the kingdom. 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. There are two key players that uh, are at the crux of this divided kingdom. One is a guy named Jeroboam, who worked for Solomon. Another guy is Rehoboam, a Rehoboam is Solomon's son. So you got these two individuals, and then you've got the people who are looking at these two leaders. Verse 3, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Now, uh, Rehoboam doesn't do good. Uh, He commits political suicide. The kingdom fractures. Ten tribes follow Jeroboam. Two follow Rehoboam. And that begins 1 Kings and 2 Kings uh, and really all the way until um, Assyria comes in and takes the north and Babylon comes in and takes the south and the people go into exile. But right at the beginning here, this, I just want to begin with this reflection. The people of Israel look at Solomon's career and they call it two particular things. Did you see what they called it? Look back at the text. Your father made our yoke what? heavy. Therefore, lighten the, what kind of service? Hard service. Now, let's make it, let's do a little reflecting here on the life of Solomon. Solomon was the wisest, most accomplished, richest, most insightful leader the world had ever seen. But the people who followed him observed something about him that this was a multi-billionaire leader. And they said, working for him was painful. Now, as we begin, I don't know what kind of boss you work for. You probably don't work for the wisest person who's ever lived. Now, don't elbow if your boss is in here. Don't point and look. Just keep it to yourself. I don't know what kind of boss you are. Maybe you manage people in your day-to-day organization. At some point in your career, there is coming a time where people will talk about you, where people will reflect upon who you are as a boss, who you are as a leader, who you were as a coworker. And they may not remember your accomplishments. They may not remember how wise you were. They may not remember how much money you make. They may not remember the fact that you were the head of the company. But what they will remember is how you treated them. Amen? Anybody have a boss in your life that, you, that treated you poorly? Don't be shy. Come on, like, like you've all worked for holy and righteous individuals, right? And this is what Solomon is going to show us in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. He's going to show us the tension between accomplishment 
and relationship. Okay, you see where this is going? We're gonna see what it looks like for Solomon to examine life and work under the sun and what it looks like for us to be in relationships and how those two worlds can come together and coexist, all right? Let's pray, ask God for his grace, then we'll jump into Ecclesiastes chapter four. Father in heaven, thank you for the truths that we have sung. Thank you that the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ, the apostles and the prophets, and that we stand here in the line of people who look to your word, look to specific revelation to help us understand ourselves rightly, to help us understand the relationships in our lives, to help us understand the ambitions of our hearts and our families and our workplaces and our marriages and our parenting. And we long, Father, for you to speak into our lives here this morning. Would you bring us to the knowledge of yourself? Would you reveal some things about ourselves that maybe we haven't considered before? Would you point us to the beauty and wonder of Jesus Christ, the divine God-man, crucified for sinners, dead, buried, raised from the dead, that we might be able to walk in newness of life? So, Father, we give thanks for your Son, about whom we have sung about, about in whom we rejoice, and by whom we give thanks. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter four. four. Y'all there? Flip on back. Okay. Holly, you there? Good. Thank you, Holly. All right. Ecclesiastes four. Let's do it. Again, I saw. Now, this continues Solomon's reflections. We've seen three big reflections in chapter three and chapter four. Chapter three, the search for meaning. End of chapter three, righteousness and, and uh, justice. Uh, that we don't see, I'm sorry, wickedness in the place of righteousness and justice. Now Solomon turns and he's not going to look up like he did last week. Last week he looked to the courts. He looked to the place of judicial uh, decisions where this is right and this is wrong. This person's innocent, this person's guilty. And he said it's corrupt up there. But now he's going to look somewhere else and he's going to look to the man-to-man relationships. He's going to look to the normative relationships we have as we go out into the world and live life under the sun. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So here's Solomon's recognition. I'm looking for meaning And God's put eternity in my heart, and I can't make sense of the times. I'm looking for righteousness and justice, and all I see is wickedness. Now I look at the relationships, and I see consistently just an imbalance of power. That mankind, this this intentionally follows 3, 16 to 22, where men are described as beasts. I see now the oppressions that exist in this world, and I just see individuals who will oppress and afflict other people. I see the, uh, the accused or the abused or the ones who are oppressed, and they cry out for help and for comfort, and there's no one to comfort them. This is life in a sinful world, that there's consistent power imbalances. If you've ever been in a situation in life, in relationships or in the workplace, where you recognize power is on their side and there's none on mine. That I want things to be different, but there's basically nothing I can do. My hands are tied and I have no power to make anything any different. And the experience of the oppressed is just uh, frustrating. 
excuse me, frustration. They need comfort and there's none. Verse two, and I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Why? Because oppression is, do- is over, right? When you die, there is no more oppression. When you die, there is no more power imbalance. Mankind can't exert any more oppressive influence upon you when you are dead, amen? Right? We don't have bullies when we're dead. Verse three, but better than both is he who has not yet been. And uh, he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. It's better to have no scars than to have scars. It's better to have never experienced life in this world because of how often this power imbalance exists in our life and times. So you, seeing where, you see how Solomon recognizes the, uh, the way the world ought to be? That he is pushing us into all of the places that we don't want to look at. He's pushing us into these reflections on our search for meaning that we like to keep a stiff arm to. If I can just create my little sandbox of pleasure and ambition and success, I really don't need to wrestle with meaning. If I can just create my little sandbox of pleasure and ambition and success and gain, I really don't have to worry about injustice that's out there. If I can just create my own little world distinct and pulled away from life under the sun, I really don't have to think that much about oppression. I don't have to hear the cries of those who experience the imbalance of power that characterizes life under the sun, life with no eye toward God and who he is and what he is doing. But Solomon's explicit in these things. He makes you wrestle with them. See, the church ought to be the place where we are able to wrestle with the utter sinfulness of life in a broken world, right? We should be the most sensitive, the most tender, to recognize life in this world doesn't work. Remember what Ecclesiastes 1 says? What is lacking cannot be counted. What is crooked cannot be made straight. That life is warped, it's loaded, it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And Ecclesiastes does this for us. It makes us recognize and wrestle with the things that we want to keep at arm's distance and not have to deal with. But when power imbalances invade your life, your heart hurts. When you see injustice as a Christian, your heart hurts and you long for things to be made right. When you feel like your life doesn't make sense and you can't tie the pieces together in a way where it's a cohesive whole, our hearts hurt. Now all of those philosophical ideas, Solomon is going to handle in a very weird and almost disjointed way. He's going to say all of those philosophical ideas are actually something that you wrestle with and you deal with every day. You just don't see them. 
They're just not very common as you think about them. Now let me show you. Look at Solomon's pivot here. Solomon's going to give you three kind of mini vignette stories. And he's going to, they, they feel disjointed, but I'm going to show you at the end how they all tie together and link to, like links in a chain. So he says, there's oppression. There's the oppressor and there's the oppressed. And there's weeping and mourning and no one's there to comfort them. Verse 4, then I saw that all the toil and all skill in work, he says two things. One, he talks about your work. Two, he talks about how good you are at it. Anybody have a job? You don't need to like tell me what the job is. You have a job that you love. Raise your hand. You love what you do. Put them up high so the rest of us can feel bad. Right? Who are, which of you are preparing for a job that you love? Raise your hand. You have ambitions. Anybody ever seen somebody really, really good at what they do at work? Raise your hand. That person comes to mind. They are great at what they do. Okay? So follow with me Solomon's line of reasoning. Oppression and the oppressed. No one to comfort them. And then he says, all this toil and all this skill, all this excellence and all this work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Uh Uh-oh. Who saw somebody good at what they did and got into that field because of how good they were at what they did? Raise your hand. It's getting fewer and fewer. None of you were influenced by anybody else. This will come up later. You saw somebody great at what they did and you said, I want to do that. Now Solomon starts to bring our work life closer and closer to us. He says, wait a minute, all of that toil, all that skill, all that work is because of envy. Which means I'm working and I'm toiling and I'm good at what I do to get better than you. I'm working and I'm toiling and what's captivating my heart is this envy of I ought to have what they have. I ought to be as successful as they are. I ought to have the raise like they got the raise. I'd like to make partner the way they're a partner. I'd like to step into that world of success myself. This I saw also is a vanity and a striving after wind. See, this desire, Solomon now uh, kind of exposes us, right? He turns, he goes, look at oppression out there. Isn't oppression bad? Yeah, Sal, oppression is bad. What about the oppressed? Man, somebody should comfort them. This is bad. It's bad out there. It's rough out there. And now Solomon turns the mirror on us. And he goes, how hard are you working? Pretty hard. You good at what you do? Yeah, real good at what I do. How'd you get into it? Because I want to be better than that guy. I want to be better than her. Why does he do this? Why does he move from oppression to work? Why does he move and connect oppression to envy? It's because oppression and envy both have the same DNA. What do you mean, Steve? Listen, oppression is essentially this idea in relationships, is that you exist for me, that you have something that I ought to have, that I ought to be able to operate in relationship as if I can take from you. And if I have more power than you, then you now suffer as a result of this relationship. But isn't envy the same thing? 
Doesn't envy say it moves from oppression out here to oppression in here, that I ought to have what you have. I ought to be able to take what you have. I ought to be as successful as you are. And both oppression and envy don't look at uh, this, you know, the New Testament uh, idea of Philippians chapter two. Consider others as how? More significant, right? What do oppression and envy do? They make people less significant in favor of my own ambitions and my own desires. Uh-oh, right? Wait a minute, Solomon, what are, you, what are you saying? I'm saying for those of you who work for your own end and you work and are driven because of comparison, that what you are doing is just a step away from oppressing other individuals. That you will now take opportunities to exalt yourself because of how you compare yourself to other people and now people become objects for you to step on to advance. Let me me prove it. Let me push it even further. You ever, did you this week, were you somewhere where you had this thought to yourself? This person is making me late. This person is holding up the line. Why did this person decide to return so many things right before me in line at this store? Don't they know the things that I have to do in my life? Don't they understand the things that I need to achieve? Don't they understand the plans that I had for my day? What are we doing in that moment? What are we doing? We're taking these individuals, these people made in the image of God, and they become barriers to our efficiency. They become objects upon which we can step to finally accomplish the things that we need to accomplish because we got things to do, places to be, deals to make. We've got ambition that lives in our hearts. Now, you see how savvy Solomon is? Don't you hate this? Look at what he says next. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What are you saying, Steve? What are you saying? We do the four-hour work week? You say we just give up, take more naps at work? What are you saying? We're going to be less efficient? We can't be less efficient. We got things to do. We got deals to make. We got money to make. We got ambition and achievement and accomplishment that drives this organization. So Solomon understands the pendulum swing in your heart, the pendulum swing in my heart to say, what do you want me to do? Just give up, work, just quit? No, he says, no, don't, don't pendulum swing way over here and say, and live the life of sloth. The sloth, life of sloth is a foolish life. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Do you have a cross-reference to Proverbs 6 in your Bible there? You probably have two, Proverbs 24 and Proverbs 6. They both say the same thing. Here's what they say. Uh, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a robber and want like an armed man. The life of sloth all through the Proverbs is recognized as a foolish decision. Proverbs 12, I think it is, or uh, 13 says, the soul of the sluggard craves but gets nothing. He's got lots of desire, but he just can't get anything done. And here Solomon recognizes, you fold your hands, you stop working, you stop being ambitious, you stop being diligent to the things that God has given you to do, you eat yourself alive. Is that a problem? That's a problem, that's not a good way to live. Write that down, somebody asked you this week. Don't eat yourself alive. 
Here's his balance, verse, uh, verse six. He's gonna do this three different times in this passage. He's gonna use the word better. So he recognizes on one extreme is envy and oppression that drives us to be maniacs in our lives. On the other one is sloth, where we eat ourselves alive. Neither good solutions, agreed? Neither good. And now he's gonna say better than both of those things. Look at six, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. He continues the hands illustration. You've got three options here, to do this, to do this, or to do this. What's the best one? It's this one, a handful of quietness with toil. Work hard, rest hard. Accomplish, relax. Now, he's gonna illustrate it in a minute. This idea of better, this is, there's probably there's three different Proverbs, I'll give, you to them, I'll give them to you real quick here, that capture this idea, that when you move through the wisdom literature, uh, it's really Ecclesiastes that pushes us in our philosophical assumptions. It pushes us to wrestle with questions that we have a tendency to avoid. When you move into the, in the, the, uh, like the book of Proverbs, Proverbs makes these general statements where it's able to see life in such a way that there's balance to it. There's good things to pursue, there's dangerous things to look out for. And he makes general statements in the book of, books of Proverbs. Here, Proverbs 15, 16 says this, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Proverbs 16, 8, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. One more, Proverbs 17.1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. As Solomon recognizes, even in Ecclesiastes, there's a time for work and there's a time for rest. There's a balance that's good for you in the context of work. Take a break. Don't work so hard. The only thing that allows us to unhitch this like manic ambition that lives in the American culture is understanding that there's nothing to be gained in life under the sun. That's the holistic observation of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. And if you don't take that seriously, you will fall prey to the manic ambition that lives in the heart of every American. Do you feel how anti-American this text is? How it starts to pull out the, uh, by the roots, the weeds of ambition and selfishness and individualism that live in our hearts. Now, here's his second image. Oppression, bad. Envy, bad. Sloth, bad. Working like crazy, also bad. Be balanced. One hand with toil, one hand with quietness. Live like that. Now, he's going to show you quietness in a little bit of a different way. Look at his next vignettes. Verse seven. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other. Literally, the Hebrew says one person, not another. This is a guy or gal on their own. This person has no other, either son or brother. Two significant relationships. He's got no family and he's got no offspring. He's got no relationships of intimacy close to him and nobody that follows him. He is the prototypical lone wolf. 
She is the ambitious individual who is only out to get hers. Now watch how many no's there are in this passage. One person, no others. Either son or brother, yet there is no what? There's no end to all their toil. I take it in this story that Solomon shows us here, this is all self-inflicted. Better is a handful of toil and a handful of quietness. And then Solomon shows you the choices that these individuals make. One, they isolate themselves. Two, they take more upon themselves than makes sense. Do you remember what Solomon said at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 2? Turn back to chapter 2, just real quick, and I'll show you. Look at 2.22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Literally, his heart doesn't lay down. And Solomon looks again at this individual who has eliminated themselves from relationships and who has taken upon themselves the ambition to never stop working. There's no end. Go back to four. There's no end to all his toil. Look at the, the last part of it. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. The sloth folds his hand and eats himself alive. This person is never full. Work so captures their life. That every time he looks out, he never has contentment. She's never content. There always is more to achieve, more to accomplish, more work to do. Their heart doesn't lay down. They keep going and going and going and going. There's nobody else. There is no end. And there is no satisfaction. So that... He never asks. What an interesting phrase that Solomon used. He never asks. There's a question he should be asking that he never asks. There's a question she should be reflecting on, but she never asks it. They're so consumed with work that there's no self-reflection. Solomon, as the wisest man on earth, speaks into this individual's life and asks an incredibly important question, a question that ought to govern our time and working and effort and ambition, and recognizes that this individual never asks this incredibly important question. He never asks this, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? He doesn't ask, what are you toiling for, right? The important question isn't, what is it that I'm toiling for? That's already been answered. He's toiling for riches, right? There's no satisfaction in his riches, though. He can't see. He can't get to a point of contentment. His only ambition is more. He doesn't even ask, the why are you working? Well, for the joy of what I do. Because I love my work. There's no, it, you can't tell me that I should stop working because I love my work. He doesn't even look at the subjective pleasure in the work, he asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? You know what Solomon just said about work? He just said that there should be a governor upon our work, a governor upon our ambition, a governor upon the ways in which we make uh, efforts to exalt ourselves, to be ambitious in this world. 
to achieve more in this world. And the governor, do you know what a governor is in a truck? I used to drive moving trucks, and they would, when you drive moving trucks, they have a governor on them. Anybody know what a governor is? It keeps the truck, it's why you're mad when you drive behind trucks. It keeps the truck at like 55 miles an hour. Who drives 55, right? Nobody except these trucks. It limits the efficiency and the speed of the truck because they've decided that if we limit this truck's speed, we'll have, we'll have more safety, we'll be more efficient, we'll lose less shipments, we won't get in wrecks, we won't do that. So we limit that. That's what's happening here. What relationship right now in your life is causing you to limit your ambition, to limit your desire for success, to limit your plan of advancement in your life. And Solomon recognizes when ambition is unhinged, we never ask that question. We're never really willing to take that question seriously. Why? Because of envy and oppression. People are things that we use. People aren't people that we love. Now, look at verse 9. Two, did I, do, did I do eight? Yeah, we finished eight. Verse 9, two are better than one. Well, I'll prove it to me, Solomon, because I'm pretty fast. You ever heard that proverb, you want to go uh, fast, go alone? If you want to go far, go together. You ever hear that? It's probably some African proverb, Confucius says it or something like that. I can't remember who said it. But there's an element to that in our, we all love the story of the lone wolf, don't we? I grew up on westerns. Westerns were big in my family growing up, which means we had a, a heavy diet of John Wayne. Now, if you've never seen John Wayne movies, John Wayne movie, John Wayne was, uh, you know, he was about 6'2", and they made all these saloon doors that he would walk through for guys about 5'7". So every time John Wayne would walk through a saloon door, he looked like this massive individual. And all of the movies about John Wayne uh, center upon the individual John Wayne. He's the quintessential cowboy who can do everything on his own. And we love those stories. We love being sufficient. We love being able to accomplish the things that we want to accomplish. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. You ever try to put up a ceiling fan on your own? You look like an idiot because you're trying to hold the screws in your mouth and the screwdriver here and hold the fan up and you're on a ladder and your wife's laughing at you, and, right? Get a buddy. You ever try to put in a toilet by yourself? You know how you put in a toilet? You got the drain and you got these two screws that stick up in a toilet. If you, this, this is free. So you've got the drain, the hole, and you've got these two screws, and you've got to take the commode, and you've got to lift it up, and you can't see around it, and you've got to try to line it up with the two screws that stick. Anybody with me? And here you are, look, thank you, Don. Here you are looking like an idiot trying to line up and look around the commode to try to line it up on these two screws and put it down on the base, also on the wax ring that you've got to squish so that none of the sewer gases get out. You ever try to do that by yourself? Man, it's annoying. Get a buddy. Anybody want to paint on their own? One, Holly. I like painting, right? Somebody, go talk to Holly today. She'll help you get that painting done. 
You don't want to paint. I don't want to paint either. It's boring and lonely. Solomon says, two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. You can get more done with other people, right? Say yes. Thank you. Verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. This is the quintessential. I've never seen John Wayne roll an ankle in any of his movies. Never. Never. Woe to the person who has no one to help them up when they fall. What does this presume about your life? It presumes that there are incidental realities that will come into your life that will compromise your ability to get the stuff done that you need to get done. Right? You ever have a flat? You ever have a car go down? You ever have a, you know, a thing that puts you in the hospital? You ever have stuff that comes into your life? That, man, it's easier if you have somebody else because you know what? No, I can't drive myself home from the doctor because they gave me something that I'm blind in this eye and they've got to help me and I need a friend. That's part of life. Get a buddy. Verse 11, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? What's the answer? You can't. Falls come into our life. The, the bitter cold of life in this world and being on a journey by yourself it's better together. You stay warm together. Verse 12, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, you want to go mano a mano with somebody? It's better to have a buddy. I mean, maybe you've got hands and you're good. Jab, cross, uppercut. You'd rather be two on one though, wouldn't you? I mean, I know a lot of you fist fight. I, I, I get it. I mean, you're probably like, no, nah, I'm pretty good. I got no, I mean... There are threats. There are incidental things. There are worldly things where we're cold in the bitterness of life out there. And there's threats with people who come against us. Isn't it nice to have a friend when you go through situations where you face threats in this world? Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Two-on-one is good. Three-on-one is better. So oppression and envy. Our tendency to have, to have these relationships around us, this, the relationships in our culture that say people are to be used, people are to be abused, people are to be oppressed just as long as I get mine. And the danger of the envy that lives in our heart that causes us to compare ourselves against one another and treat people poorly as long as I get mine. And now Solomon says, here's what life is like alone. If you're alone, you're vulnerable. If you're alone, you're exposed. If you're alone, there are threats that you are not going to be able to fight on your own. Now, he gives you one more like mini vignette that is all, it, it feels so weird to close this chapter like this. But look at what he says in verse 13. He says, better again. Here's the third mention of better. Better is a handful of toil and a, and a handful of quietness. Life is better together. Two are better than one. Better was a poor and wise youth. 
than an old and foolish king. There are three contrasts in this passage that are uh, somewhat unexpected. The youth is poor and wise. The king is old and he's foolish. You see that? Now, typically, you have, um, you have wisdom in a place it's not usually expected, right? Usually, the youths are fools. And usually, the old guys are wise. But it's contrasted here. Contrasted why? Look at what it explains to you about the, the king. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So what is it about the young man that makes him wise? See, a lot of you are at the front end of your careers right now. A lot of you have a lot of beginnings in your mind. I'm going to begin to get that first house. I'm going to begin to make uh, that advancement in my career. I'm going to begin my practice when I finish the work that I put in on my school. And you're always looking ahead. And Solomon now gives you one last story that shows you the contrast between someone who is young and poor and wise and someone who is old and foolish and a king who can't listen. They won't pay attention. Watch. Verse 15, I saw all the living who move about under the sun. Think in your mind this sea of humanity. We've, been, we've pulled out two individuals, and then we have this sea of humanity. All of these people who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. So here's this youth on the cusp of stepping into the greatest career advancement opportunity he has. And he's singled out as an individual, alone, in a sea of people, alone in the mass of humanity and responsibility that lies before him. And he's all on his own. And when you think about the future steps that you're going to make in your career, Solomon is asking you if you will listen to his advice. He's asking you if you will pay attention to the theme that he has been building all the way through Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Because if you don't, this is where it's headed. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. If you make it, young guys, young gals, your ambition to orient your life around your ambition and your accomplishments rather than your relationships, there will come a time when your relationships will be gone. Amen? Old guys older than me? Old ladies older than me? No? Amen? Amen, that's right. And the question that you leave with at the end of chapter four, look at what he says, surely this also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. So the question for you and the question for me when I read Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is coming back right into the middle of the chapter. The chapter begins with oppression and envy. The chapter ends with the end of a career where everybody forgets you and nobody rejoices in who you were no matter how high your position was. 
And the question for you and I is whether or not we will take Solomon's advice. Will we put a governor upon our work-life ambition? Will we ask the question that we have a tendency not to ask? For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? What relationships right now do you have in your life that are so precious and so important to you that you would decline a job advancement? What relationships are so important for you in your life to maintain this common community and commonality where you have opportunities to love and to be loved, to help others when they fall and they help you when you fall? To stay warm as you journey through the cold, barry, uh, you know, barrenness of life. To be protected when you go through threats that come against you because you have real, true, and authentic relationships that help to protect you. Now, Solomon, in this passage, there's no, how do I put it? There's no moral oughtness to the relationships. Do you see that? Solomon just says, we're made to be together. He just says, envy and oppression and ambition and unchecked advancement in your life that causes you to eliminate relationships that are, quite frankly, way too inefficient is dangerous to you. But when you move to the New Testament, how much more is community an important thing for those of us who know and love Jesus Christ? Every single book in the New Testament has this, um, it's like the gospel is this tuning fork. You know what a tuning fork is? You with me? This illustration works. A tuning fork resonates at a frequency, and they put it on a piano to be able to make sure that all the, the uh, string thingies are resonating with them, right? If you're a piano tuner, this illustration, you can rebuke me later. When the gospel rings in the hearts and minds of people, it creates a community, right? It creates a group of people, all of whom uh, have our hearts turned toward the worship of Jesus Christ. And Solomon paints this picture of oppression. Solomon lives out a life where he loses the reputation in the eyes of people he follows. So that when we step into the New Testament and we see a king who says, the Gentiles lord it over those in their charge. But not so among you. For the greatest among you will be your what? Servant. Colossians talks about hearts being knit together in love. 2 Corinthians, it just came to mind, says this. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves might no longer live for themselves my ambition, my achievement, my exaltation, my plans, my agenda. 
my individualized approach to life, but rather for him who for their sake died and was raised. And when the gospel gets a hold of people in a church and the tuning fork starts to resonate and our hearts all begin to unite in song and we all look away from ourselves into Jesus Christ who loves us, who washed our feet and made us a body. Jesus didn't save a group of people to be like marbles in a jar where we're all individuals and we all come in and we sing, we don't look left or right, we only look at Jesus, and we have no obligation or responsibility to one another. That's not how God wired it. God made a body of believers because of Jesus Christ, who is the head, to put us in relationships with one another. To where now you have an opportunity to sit next to somebody who is falling, and you can pray for them, and you can encourage them. That when they go through hard times and it's cold out there and there's difficulty in your life, that you can come alongside and be a warming, encouraging, embracing kind of individual. When there are threats in the body, either spiritual or physical or mental or emotional that seek to crater us as Christians, the church becomes this place where we like to say it here at Citadel Square. Here's what we call it. We call it relational responsibility. There are three, maybe 400 people in this room, and all of you are at a certain spot in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And inevitably, we all have a tendency to evaluate that individually. What if we began to look at our participation in the life of the church where we began to take responsibility for this people? And this happens all the time, and I can't, gosh, I can't, I can't yell at you about this. I can't force this on you. I can just lay out the beautiful opportunity that the Spirit of God wants to do in our lives and with one another if we're willing to sacrifice the thing that for us is so important. Because listen, it costs you something to be in relationship with other people. Do you know that? Isn't that disappointing? Right? Do you know what it costs you? It costs you independence. It costs you the say-so over your life where you begin to live your life because of Jesus in such a way that you matter to me and I matter to you and we begin to live this life not out for gain that we are never promised in life under the sun, but we begin to journey through life together. Listen, we're a weird church. I'll tell you what I mean. We're a weird church in that many of you drive downtown And a lot of our neighbors are institutional. We've got a five-star hotel there. Where is it? Here? We've got uh, another church behind us. We've got a, a, a hotel across the street, a gas station here. And you guys all drive together. And inevitably, we all drive in separate cars. Nobody takes the bus together. And we all come downtown. And we have this kind of occupational hazard in the church where if we're not intentional about stepping toward one another, we're going to miss what the Spirit of God wants to do among us. What we're praying right now as elders is that God would raise up more group leaders so that as you drive back to the North area, Somerville, Ladson, James Island, Johns Island, downtown, Mount Pleasant, wherever it is that we would have little places Little embassies of God's work on this planet where you can love and be loved, where you can serve and care and connect and be next to one another and begin to practice things that God has given to us as practices for the New Testament church. 
Otherwise, we're going to come and we're going to take communion and we're never going to have that hard work that it takes to repent with one another, to say, I'm sorry, I neglected our relationship. You matter to me. Let's step forward together in repentance and faith. What is God doing in your life? How can I pray for you? Can I encourage you this week? What's eating your lunch? What's difficult? What's a threat? If that stuff doesn't matter to us, then we are falling far short of what the New Testament calls a church to be. And the thing that scares me is that we will have people who go, hey, I listen to you online. I love it here. I'm struggling. It's my first time coming to this city. And I've left my family, and it's my first job, and I got my first car, and I'm in, and this is my first job, and you guys love Jesus here, right? And they would come into our church, and nobody would talk to them. And I can't do this. I can't, I can't make us that kind of church. Our elders can't make us that kind of church. It's got to be us. It's got to be us being willing to sacrifice some independence, to sacrifice some ambition, and to step forward toward one another to make relationships the way they ought to be in the New Testament church. Do you want a New Testament church? We got to to ask ourselves that, don't we? Because if we don't come into the church and say, not my will be done, God, but your will be done, then we'll never value each other. We'll never defer to one another. So this puts forward for us, Ecclesiastes chapter four says, look, there's benefits to having a buddy, right? It's nice to have a spotter when you work out. It's safe for you, it's good, it's nice to have a friend that you can call. But in the New Testament church, it's way more than that. It's way more than that. The opportunity that the Spirit of God is laying before us is such a wonderful and beautiful thing. I'll close with this. Ephesians, um, I, I, was, I had a job uh, right out of college. And uh, I was working for a moving company. That's why I used my moving truck illustration. Uh, and I had a boss named Bob. And um, we worked together. The moving industry was not something I decided to get into. It was something where God sort of directed me into. I planned to be a doctor, and God's eye was like medicine. And God's like, how about moving? And I was like, oh, it's different. Uh, and uh, I was working next to a guy named Bob. Bob was my boss. Bob was a guy who had been in the moving industry for decades. He was an over-the-road, long-haul driver. He would drive coast-to-coast, water-to-water, we would call it. And he came to us one day, and he, me and another assistant manager, and he took us outside, and we stood there in the parking lot just for a minute because he wanted to have a one-on-one conversation with us. And he says, guys, I've been drinking, and I've been drinking too much. And I've got to step away for a while because I've got to get this substance abuse thing under control. And I wanted to tell you guys that if you guys don't see me, those are the things that I'm going to be handling. And it wasn't a week, maybe two weeks later, where we never saw Bob again. And you know how many meetings we missed when Bob was gone for his sake? None. You know how many trucks didn't deliver the shipments Because of Bob, none. You know how many updates we got about Bob six weeks after his departure? None. 
and it ought not be that way in the church. Right? We believe that, don't we? Paul says in Ephesians, are you eager for manifestations of the Spirit? Then strive at building up the church. Father, we can just pray these things. For all of us who are in this room here today, Father, I pray that you would reorganize our hearts and minds, that we would uh, take steps to repent of the self-focus that we have, that we would repent of the areas in life where we have a tendency to uh, put ourselves first and not put others first. And Father, I pray the Spirit of God would give us strength and power to accomplish those things that only you can do in the life of the church. So Father, bless us in this endeavor. We pray that you would answer these prayers, that this church and this place would be a place where uh, the, the world would look in and, go and say, see how they love one another. Father, we ask that that you would do that in Jesus' name, amen.